All right. So we're continuing through our series on apologetics. Um, I had originally planned a talk, lecture, whatever you want to call it, on essentially a principle that may best be described. And you may want to write this down because there are certain mantras that I find to be very helpful when engaging with unbelief or bad. When I say unbelief, much of what we do and most of the people we talk to when it comes to apologetics are not even unbelievers. Sometimes it's just our children. Um, sometimes it's a fellow Christian with whom we disagree and we're having some form of argument. And when I say argument, I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. We need to stop thinking that disagreeing about things is bad. You're going to disagree with people. It's how we disagree with one another and how we conduct ourselves when we are disagreeing. Um, it is right to be patient and gentle and kind. But we do need to stick to our guns in the event that we believe something. And if you don't have the conviction to argue about something, maybe you don't really believe it that strongly. Um, now, you do need a sort of a, a gradation of ideas to which you hold strongly. So, for instance, in Micah 7, the whole doctrine of redemption is built upon the kind of God that the God of the Bible is. Because God is three in one, he has personality. And because he has personality, he creates us with the capacity to know and be known by him and one another. We, our, our being, the study of human anthropology, begins with God in the space of six days created all things and very good. And then, of course, the fall occurred. And so everything we do is built upon a series of principles and maxims and ideas that we hold to be true. And so here is the, the, the thing I was referring to earlier. It's not whether, but which. Where is our whiteboard? We have that rolling whiteboard. It's not here, is it? No, I don't need it right now. It's downstairs. We'll do it later. But write it down. It's very short. It's not whether, but which. So don't let someone tell you that they have not made up their mind about something or that they are truly agnostic or atheist, whatever. Everyone has a system, a worldview. The real debate is, what is it? So it's not whether or not you have a God. It's which God is it? So let's apply that then to, say, general polity. It's not whether you have a theos, right? There's a lot of debate as to whether or not Christians should be theocratic. Well, you are inevitably theocratic. You have, everyone has blasphemy laws, for instance. It's not whether you're a theocrat. It's what, what kind of theocrat are you? Who is your theos? If your theos is the, is the people, then you are a strict vulgar, naked Democrat. And when I say Democrat, I don't mean a member of the Democratic Party. You are into democracy, uh, which has become a real buzzword lately, right? <laughs> Our democracy depends upon um, Republicans not getting elected to office is sort of how it goes right now. Um, so you have this group of people who hold to these certain principles, and those certain principles are we don't hold to principles, 
be like us. And what we want to say is, yeah, I don't, I don't believe you. And it, it's not necessarily that we think they know they're lying. Many of these people are deluded and they think that they don't hold to the sin of partiality. No man is impartial. Or as one seminary professor said to me, and maybe this is another way of saying it's not whether but which, biases aren't bad. Bad biases are bad. This is a Bob Kara, Dr. Robert J. Kara, Bob Kara saying. I think it's very helpful. It's so silly and stupid that it bears repeating over and over again. It's not that biases are bad. It's that bad biases are bad. So what I was going to touch on was how our view of where we came from and where we're going affects the kind of lives that we lead. Instead, we're going to cover that later, what I want to deal with is what we have in these notes, and that is dealing with the sin of unbelief, where that comes from and how we talk about it. All right. Where does unbelief arise from? What's that? No, go ahead. Our heart. Yeah, we're, we are inherently um, suspicious of authority. And we are suspicious of authority because we have traded when God made us God has said do this to did God really say? And so the, the sentiment of the human heart after Eve and her husband fell, Adam, after they sinned, was to fall prey to the deception of the serpent. Did God really say? And so everyone that you have ever met is struggling with submission to authority. Children struggle in submission to authority to parents. We struggle as adults with submission to authority to with anybody. That's, we struggle with the fifth commandment. And we struggle with the fifth commandment in the same way that we struggle with the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Honor your father and mother. Those two commandments that form a kind of summary of both tables of the law, those things that we owe to God, those things that we owe to man, which are also related to one another, we don't do that well. And so we are suspicious. Now, I have taught my children and tried to teach them to be um, rightly suspicious of all things, and to take all principles and ideas and submit them to the truth of God's word. That's not the kind of suspicion I'm talking about, though. I'm talking about an inherent kicking against the authority of God. And unbelief is less a, an, an absence of knowledge and understanding and more a presence of active rebellion. So let's look at Proverbs 26, 4 through 5. Um, in fact, let's go there. I should have marked this. Any questions so far? Anything? All right, Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Solomon is giving us some technique for how we speak to the fool. The fool is someone who does not think God's thoughts in the way that God would have him think them. Now, Solomon is saying, do not enter in to the folly of their way of thinking. And so when you begin to answer a fool, do not think for a moment that you can think like the fool and bring them to a place of wisdom. You must act and speak in such a manner that you don't dress like the fool. You are calling him to think like 
you. Now, texts like these, Proverbs 26 and others, form a sort of foundational uh, bedrock for the transcendental or presuppositional form of apologetics, that technique, which basically says every man is made in the image of God, they know they're made in the image of God, and that all sin is active rebellion knowingly against God's lordship. They don't know Christ necessarily, but they know, they know there is a God and they are establishing systems whereby they are able to suppress the truth of God and exchange it for a lie. And those systems are very important to them. So Obergefell, Roe v. Wade, those are legal components to a system that they need to be true in order to continue to live in open and active rebellion. We don't want those things to be true because we believe that there are violations of the law of God. No one should ever kill an unborn child. No one should ever believe that a man and a man or a woman and a woman have the right to be married to one another. And it's not even marriage in the first place. Don't call it what it isn't. But that when an unbeliever rejects the authority of God, they do so as a child who climbs into their father's lap to slap him in the face. It is active Open rebellion. And so unbelief is not merely, I don't know, but there is some of that. It is, I know and I openly and I actively reject it. Especially when they do so in the face of special revelation. This is why the church simply needs to get the word out there. Get it out there. Let God handle the hearts of men who hear it, but you simply proclaim it. Now, the problem with a lot of us is we want to justify the ends and the means. We want to assure both, and you can't. You can only be faithful. So, is the problem of information? No, it is not merely information. It is a problem of suppression. And so Van Til says what you are called to do is to go and to take the roof off. Taking the roof off is sort of his technique that he refers to as providing them no grounds for continuing in their persistent unbelief. Expose the ludicrous nature of it. Now, do you think they're going to love you for that? I mean, no. So um, the other day, Heath was on his way, flew out to Oklahoma and was driving home with a new truck for his company that's his new semi. Carla, um, Carla, Cora, I do that all the time. Cora was hanging out with us, spent the night with us, and she brought their new dog, Utah. Utah is this beautiful um, golden lab. And Utah, in order for her to actually calm down and relax, has to be put in her crate. Well, I said, hey, Utah, let's go. Have you ever tried to parent other people's kids? Have you ever tried to parent someone else's dog? It doesn't work. <laughs> there is a, a kind of communication that happens between owners and pets that other humans don't have with those same pets. So you tell, let's go get in the crate. Well, I, you know, I didn't just say it. I was trying to get her. She kept running away from me. So I finally got her, like physically got her. And I grabbed her, and I was getting ready to put her in a crate, and of course she peed everywhere. <laughs> and she turned around to bite me. And so I put her, you know, I grabbed her head so she couldn't bite me. And I eventually got her and put her in the crate. Well, for the rest of the day... She was not happy with me. And every time prior to that, she would just follow me around. 
Like, where are you going? And after that, everywhere I went, she was running away from me. At some point in your life with an unbeliever, you are going to go from, hey, I like being followed. I really want people to listen to me, to why is no one listening to me? There is an element of that that will happen when you confront people as they are. And so if pastors or Christians are concerned with being liked or having followers, they are less likely to engage in the kinds of conversations and dialogues that people actually need to have happen. Um, I was talking to a couple men recently about the leadership in their church when the COVID stuff hit, and two years later, they still don't know where the leadership of the church stands. I said, there's only one reason for that. Because as soon as they say one way or the other, and whatever you think about that, as soon as they make a stand, they're going to anger one group of people and please another. Because the church is like 600 people. There's going to be enough people there where you're going to create difficult sentiment. And there's a lot of men in ministry that want to try to somehow navigate that without ever making anybody mad. You will, when you go out, when you confront unbelief, step on toes. But what we are called to do is to get out there anyway and to do so. So, men know God, but they do not honor him as God. We find this in Romans 1, verses 19 through 21. And because of that, they have become fools. Now, when Paul says they have become fools, what he is again referring to is a system of idolatry and unbelief. Their foolishness is a persistent, known rebellion against God. And the reason we call it foolish is because it is antithetical to wisdom. Wisdom does not know everything, our kind of wisdom, right? We grow in wisdom. But wisdom is qualified and quantified first as submitting to the knowledge or the idea that God knows everything and he's going to tell us how to direct our lives. Fools say, I know what you're saying. I know what's good. I know what's bad. I know what works. But I'm going to knowingly do the thing that does not work. Right? Um, so I took recently the hunter safety test online. And they had a lot of questions with and answers. The first step was always, first, point your muzzle in a safe direction. Point your, you know what happens if you don't point your muzzle in a safe direction? And there is a round in there and it goes off? Well, you're going to miss some greatly that part of your body that it, either yours or someone else's or it's going to blow a hole in the wall. It's going to do damage. There are people who look at that and go, what? Oh, <laughs> that's the life of an unbeliever. There's the warnings. There's the reason those warnings are given. It's clear that those warnings are meant to give us a longer life, a happier life, a safer life, a holier life. And yet people stare down the end of that muzzle, tempting fate, as it were, tempting the wrath of God. This is what we mean by folly. If you see your kids looking down the end of the barrel of a gun, you don't go, well, I sure hope that gun's not loaded. Because that could really be... Now you run over there and you grab the gun away from them as carefully as you can. And then you point it in a safe direction. 
And the way that men do this is they exchange the glory of God for idols, they indulge their lusts, and they shatter in themselves the image of God. Um, one of the, one of the uh, examples I give of that is homosexuality. It's an expression of being given over to sin. It's a kind of perversion that results only and ever in self-harm. And not only that, but it doesn't benefit anyone. Not only does sin bring self-harm, but the kind of folly that Paul speaks of that unbelievers are caught up in brings corporate harm as well. So you may say, hey, nobody knows I'm doing this, right? Whatever those sins might be, it won't affect anyone. Our sins always have a private and corporate effect. And for this reason, because we are in many ways caught up and surrounded by men and women and children, everyone, who are actively, openly, openly, willingly defying the laws of God, they are creating a society that is chaotic, that is dog-eat-dog, that does not rejoice in life, but death. We are surrounded by people now who are, who are enamored with self to the point that they are willing to kill just so the welfare of their... Dorn, is that camera recording? It shouldn't be. Um, is it? No, it's not. I'm doing the audio. I just, we just don't need the video because it's probably like right here. Maybe this part of my head. Um, they're going to start saying Zacchaeus was a wee little man if they... Why is he not standing up when he teaches? <clears throat> They've lost their minds. Um, when you send your son to scouts, the, the goal for decades was to send your sons for the sake of moral formation and to learn practical skills that will benefit them for the rest of their life. And so for years, the Eagle Scouts were kind of a, a revered, that was a revered level. If you were an Eagle Scout, then I'll go camping with you because I know that if anything happens, I'll at least have a shelter and a fire. But then what they did was they decided we're going to put depraved men in positions of leadership in order to help our sons be morally formed. And even SNL had a skit about it at one point. I don't know if you ever saw that with Alec Baldwin. And they were making fun of it. Can you imagine that actually coming out now? The point that I made about blasphemy laws. When, um, and I heard this on a podcast recently, when the French... There was a French cartoonist who drew a cartoon about Muhammad in some sort of compromising situation, and he received death threats for it. Or there was a cartoonist who in North Korea did the same with Kim Jong-un or whichever one is in power now. It's his head on Winnie the Pooh's body. Did y'all see this? And there was a Democrat, in the in, in a U.S. Democrat, who said... I'm glad that I can live in a country where we can do stuff like that. And I said, all right, do that with trannies. Do that with George Floyd. Do that with whomever. Do that with certain... Now, I know that even saying those things may kind of go, Joby, a little too much. But my point is, every culture has a group of people or a person that you do not get to Blaspheme, offend. 
We have those laws in this land already. Now, they may not be on the books, but your life will be wrecked if you violate those things. Your public life will be wrecked, right? You're going to get fired. The HR department is going to come to your house, to your office and say, you're out of here, whatever. FBI is going to come to your house. If you, you know, the pillow guy, what in the world were they doing at his house? Whatever that may be, the my pillow guy. It's what? It's not funny. It is ridiculous. My point is, when you begin to attack the strongholds of those whose God is not the Lord, you are, you are seeking to dismantle their high places. And the energy that they have put into building those towers, card, house of cards, they will then devote to attacking you. Now, this is why apologetics should always be, as much as you are able, on a very personal level. Engage them one-on-one. Do it over coffee. Don't do it online. Right? You can shut down a computer. You can turn off the screen. You can do those things. But when you're having a conversation with someone, it's always, it's just always a better situation. Always endeavor to go one-on-one if you can. But the response to the spiral is not to pretend that they are going to respond to the gospel and to the dismantling of their worldview with anything other than a kind of wretched survival instinct. Um, One of the great examples of this would be Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Um, they They had lost their minds in agony over the fact that their idol would not hear them. So there is always an expiration date when it comes to idolatry. It can only go so far. It can only last so long. And so what we have is the confidence that when we go forth armed with the word of God, we go forth to a people that are, many of them, especially today, if you were to go out and talk to a um, you know, a typical sort of modern, even spiritual type secularist, like an American spiritual person. They're spiritual because everyone's spiritual in that sense. They, are, they know something is beyond this world, but they're inherently, they're, they are very concerned with the illusion of being in control of their lives, autonomy. That as we go out to these people that are in that downward spiral, um, we cannot go with this idea that um, it's an afternoon conversation kind of thing. Even Christians. Um, I mean, I, you know, I have many conversations with fellow brothers in Christ who are Baptist, and we only ever really joke about the sacrament of baptism because we wholeheartedly disagree about it, and if I wanted to come join their church, guess what would have to happen? I'd have to go get rebaptized, which is a violation of Scripture as far as I'm concerned. And I, I mean, it, it, it goes against the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, even that. And so I, I could never join their church unless they say, hey, we honor your baptism, which is kind of funny because they're far more high church than Presbyterians are. Because unless you're baptized as an adult, they don't actually believe you're a Christian, which is kind of funny to me, that you have to do something to prove your faith. 
I, I just find that kind of hysterical. Um, but those are the kinds of conversations we can't have. Because as soon as we begin to talk like that, like really talk about the distinctions we have, that relationship is going to go from lighthearted fun to, oh boy, I, I don't know what we're going to do. So even in many evangelical circles, and there's even this, um, I think a conference, I can't remember what it's called, where Catholics and Protestants come together. Roman Catholics and Protestants really have nothing to say to each other as it relates to religion or political theory. There's, there's nothing we agree about in some, some level. Because whether it refers to authoritarian hierarchy or the way of salvation, we don't agree on those things. The proof of that is when America was founded and schools began, the reason why Roman Catholic schools in the first place started their own schools was because there were catechisms in the, in the, in the schools. And they didn't want their kids being catechized by a bunch of Protestants, which I think is just an interesting historical point. Maybe you don't think it's interesting. I do. <laughs> Whenever we engage with someone that disagrees with us, and we do so on a substantial level, it is going to create tension. The hard part for many of us when we want to go out and do apologetics is we want people, we want to tear down their strongholds and we want them to thank us for them. And that is a, they may do that eventually, right? But they're not going to do it immediately. I mean, wives, when was the last time you said to your husbands, yeah, you kind of need to shape up in this area? And they go, thank you, sweetheart. That was so sweet of you. I appreciate you bringing that to my attention. <laughs> I'll file that in the, um, the filing cabinet for corporate, as they say, right, the waste bin. Or husbands, it, it, it is oftentimes like talking with your spouse. It could be a challenge. So when someone comes to you and says, I'm an atheist, I would encourage you to not believe them and not to talk, about, talk with them like they are a good faith atheist. Now, that does not mean you need to say, well, I don't believe you. You're self-deluded. You need to talk to them in such a way that you can actually find out what their blasphemy laws are. And as soon as you find out what their blasphemy laws are, who do you find out? What do you find out about them? Yeah, who their God is. Now, when I was in China, I would ask this question. Whom do you worship? Who's your God? What do you believe in? What is at the center of your existence? And the answer was almost universally myself. I was raised to believe that I can do whatever I want, to be whatever I want. And I said, well, how did you do on this last calculus test? I got a D. Well, some God you are. I got a C. Am I a better God than you? And I wasn't proud of that C that I got the second time I took calculus. I got a D the first time. I got a C the second time. My God doesn't just know calculus. He upholds a world where the principles of calculus explain the relationship of physical objects, and it will never change. And it's not because God has set it into motion and stands back. It's because all things are upheld by the power of his word. And I would say it to them in kind of that way. How can, how can the sum of your existence be? You. Because there's always going to be a guy who's faster, stronger, smarter, better looking. 
And so these folks that call themselves atheists are only at the very heart of it. When it's bedtime at my house, no one wants to go to bed. Bedtime is brutal. The first few minutes, like when you introduce the concept, like it's not, you've not done this every day for your kids' lives. Wait, what? It's bedtime? What? It's never been bedtime. No, it's the same thing every night. So for last night, I'm saying to one of my kids, I won't say them by name, it's time for bed. And I look at him and go, when has this ever worked? When has this ever worked? Name it. Why do you keep doing this? And the Lord is looking at us going, when has this ever worked? Joby, when has your rebellion, when has your sin ever gotten you the thing you think you're going to get from it? That is what the atheist is. It is the same rejection of authority that they know does not work, but they're going to try it again and again and again, which we call the definition of insanity. Folly is the way the scripture describes it. And so what we are doing is if we are walking up to the atheist or anybody that practices unbelief that knows what is true, I want you to think, I want you to think of a, a, a picture of a, someone who is at the pool, they're having a good time, you know, that person who likes to take the beach ball and hold it under the water. It's very difficult to displace that much water. And to do it, you know, it's not balanced, they're kind of doing this. So you take the big beach ball, it's held underwater. That is the unbeliever in their unbelief. The transcendental, presuppositional approach begins to ask questions in order to weaken the grasp on the, of, of the unbeliever on the balloon or the water, uh, the, what do they call it, beach ball under the water. Little, little questions. Because if they know the truth, then we can begin to poke holes in their worldview because the truth is there. They're trying to kill it, but it won't die. It won't drown. What we are called to do is to sort of, you know, tickle them a little bit, right? Poke holes in their arms. Gooch them. So that that truth can make itself known to them. That is a picture of what apologetics ultimately is. Sometimes it takes time. Parents, you know this with your children. There are all these things that you say to them that they think they're ignoring. This is what the Bible says. Train up a child in the way they shall go, and when they are older, they will not depart from it. Sometimes it feels like there's that, that section of lost time and insanity where they're sort of feeling their way through things, and then they get to a point in their life and they go, oh, the balloon comes out from below the surface, and they look at it and go, oh, that's right. Oh, my dad told me that five years ago. I mean, I, much of my life coming to terms with truth even knowing how to parent and raise my own children, I find myself like wearing my dad coat, like my dad, like mannerisms, all of these things. And I realize all that time that he poured into me, a lot of that stuff that I either rejected or just sort of dismissed as, well, I'm never going to do it like that. Ultimately, kind of came to the fore. And I realized I really wasted a lot of time with my dad. Maybe he should have beat me more. There was a lot of things that could have happened, that should have happened, that I knew were true, but I did not want to admit it because 
My dad was the one telling me that they were true. Surely he can't be right all the time. And you know what? He was probably right 95% of the time, which is pretty good, all things considered. And so, if our goal is to go to the unbeliever and cause them to relinquish their stronghold, their rebellion, their rejection of that truth that is constantly pushing back against them, we cannot treat them like they are normal or that there's nothing wrong. I've used this example. I'm going to use it again. You cannot enter into the delusion of pronoun stuff and hope to win them to sanity. This is what Solomon means. You need to stand your ground. Do not answer them according to their folly. Because it is not God that is on the stand. They are. And all we are endeavoring to do is let God's truth speak for itself. I heard a pastor one time get up and preach from the Old Testament and apologize for it. I know you guys... Don't like to hear stuff from the Old Testament, blah, 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 but I'm going to start preaching from this book in the Old Testament. Well, who is he talking to? I don't even know. I think he thinks he's talking to people who would be offended by the stuff that you find in the Old Testament. Here's the problem. It's because he doesn't know how to preach from the Old Testament. Because he can't preach moral maxims from the book of Ezekiel because it's hard. And because you're not really supposed to do that in many sections of the scripture. What I mean by moral maxims is, you know, just go home and love your wife more. Like, that's it? There's a profound depth to scripture. And so what often happens with many Christians is they don't even know what the Bible says about things. And so they can't tell the world what the Bible says about things. And so they don't have anything. There's no city of light to which they're leading the lost. And when you begin to apologize for God, so if someone says, well, what do you do about stoning certain people in the Old Testament? Well, lean into it. What a lot of Christians say is, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. You know, that's the Beth Moore answer. God's not like that anymore. So... Who is God then? Because anybody worth their logical salt is going to go, so who is the, who's God? Who do you say God is? And as soon as you begin to sort of rationalize and apologize for God's works in history and do not understand them and rightly explain them, you're lost. Let me give you another example. Um, Matt Walsh, you know who Matt Walsh is? Um, pretty wretched at explaining why he actually believes what he believes. Has done a lot of stuff, and I'm glad he's done it, because as Dwight L. Moody say, um, I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it. So I give him a lot of credit for a lot of the work that he's done. But he was on Joe Rogan's show. Did y'all hear, read, the, or listen to it or watch any of it? And Joe Rogan was asking them, where does your view of marriage come from? How can you say these things? And you know what Master Walsh never, ever, ever did in that interview? Appeal to Scripture. He never appealed to Scripture. And so he's trying to say, in essence, my view of marriage is better than your view of marriage because my view of marriage is right and because it results in what is good. 
Well, what is that? The problem with that is what is Joe Rogan's view of good? Did y'all hear it? What did he say? If it makes you happy. Which, what's wrong with that? I get Joe Rogan's argument. Because marriage has been given for our happiness. But it was first given for our holiness. And for the propagation of the species. Humans. So, it does make sense that if a marriage doesn't do certain things, we call it bad or not marriage. What Walsh never did was say, because God made it this way. He never appealed to God as the ultimate authority. And do you know why? I don't know if he's afraid. I think it, A, has more to do with his view of apologetics, and he's bought into the Ben Shapiro, which is data, 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 data. Facts don't care about your feelings. Actually, that's even so wrong. Um, because it's the daily wire approach to conservatism. It is Christless conservatism. Now, I say all of that. No, I, listen, I, there's a lot that I like about Daily Wire and Matt Walsh and a lot of what they're doing, and they're a better option than a lot of the other news agencies. And I go there first to look for my sort of news headlines, Twitter and then Daily Wire and then Breitbart and some other weird ones because I just want to know what's going on in the world. But when it comes to editorializing, if you leave Christ out of it, you've left everything out of it. Now, the reason why he doesn't do it is because he doesn't think that will appeal to Joe Rogan. He thinks rhetorically there is not enough weight there. He thinks if I say the Bible says, he will dismiss it outright. Yeah. You know, he was heavily what you're saying right now as to why he didn't do it. The bottom line is, and this is true for any of us in any situation that we live in, anywhere in our life, it's about do you trust him to do what work needs to be done, right? You're not convincing anybody. If he would have said that to Joe Rogan, then literally millions of people would oh, he's a he's a religious nutcase. That limb, that diving board is the one that we all have to go to. Yeah. At some point, you're going to have to say, you know, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I'm weird. There, and people are going to, you have to have the courage to say that and just get to that beyond. And that's what I want to say to Matt Walsh. Listen, if you're a faithful Catholic and you truly believe in the resurrection of Christ, don't be afraid of it. You said it this morning in your sermon. The return is way, is sevenfold. It's an Old Testament. I'll give you seven more times. Yeah. How many people in that audience would have heard, you know what? God made Adam, God made Eve. This is the way, this is the dictate from him. Yeah, there were 20 scriptures he could have quoted, it, right? It would have been like, you know, he tried not to get away in the rock, in, into, the, into the pond. He should have picked up the biggest rock, chunked it into the middle <laughs> of the pond, and said, look, it's not that deep. Yeah. That's what he should have done. Yeah. It's not that deep. That's what I believe. Yeah. He could have just said, I look at marriage Well, and there are a lot of people who don't do it out of fear. I'm not sure if Matt Walsh is afraid, and I, this isn't meant to be the Matt Walsh story hour, but I, he seems like a pretty courageous guy. Yes. Because he will say things that are unpopular, 
what he didn't do, the reason he didn't do it, because he doesn't think it works. And the problem is, God says, here is a magazine that holds ammunition. This is the ammunition that you are to use. And you load that into your weapon, and you fire that weapon, and those rounds will either conquer in mercy or conquer with judgment. And we look at the round and go, I think I have a better plan. And so what we're doing is we are trying to fight the war, but we're not using oftentimes the weapon that does the job. It, well, I think it's either a lack of knowledge, right? We can, there are certain things we don't know, and we can't know, or we've not learned. But I think a lot of it is much of our apologetics isn't actually for the sake of dismantling unbelief. I think a lot of it is like play fighting or shadow boxing. We want to, it's either done out of pride, but it's, we don't think the word of God is powerful. Or we think as soon as we play the religious card or the Bible card, people will go, well, you're just appealing to X. What was Rogan appealing to, though? Well, what he's appealing to whatever makes me happy. He's appealing to this protein, which means changeable, shifting standard. And then the question he should have asked Matt Walsh is, who then gets to set the limits of what you can do to make you happy? So let's say you want to be... This is actually part of apologetic method. At some point, there is a, a point of appeal which you can't go past. It stops. That's what you call the a priori principle. And the a priori... The, the principle that you can never go past, right? There's, you know what a line segment is? Or a line? A line... No, not a line segment. What's the thing that has a beginning and no end? Array? Array has a beginning and no end. We stand upon the word of God. That is, our, that is the origin of our, our, our foundation of our faith, and we can't go past that to appeal to anything else. That is a distinctly Christian Protestant principle. And so when someone says ultimately, well, why do you believe that? The answer can only ever be because God said it. And they're going to say, well, that... That's not a solid foundation. I would say, why do you say what you say? Well, I said it. Well, they don't have the restraint of the Bible. Therefore, they can make any argument they want because they don't have that roadblock. Yeah. So if well, they do, no, but, no, but there's as many roadblocks as there are people. Joe Rogan, he doesn't have that roadblock because he's, he's an atheist. Supposedly says he is, whatever he says he is. And you know, he doesn't have to worry about that. I'll just make a secular argument. And, you know, and, and I'll believe it. He doesn't have that restriction. Yeah. And that's the problem. So I know we're basically out of time. Um, it's okay. But it really does come down to the foundation of what you believe saves and sanctifies. Yeah. Um, there's lots of good resources out there. I ain't going to mention one. Yeah. Um, and that is a book by Scott Solomon called The Battle Belongs to the Lord. And it is about this topic and about the truth. Yeah. Derek? Well, to connect it back to where you started, 
You mean a Christian? Or you join Reformationists? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I know what you mean. Yeah. God uses people. Yeah. Joe, did you have your hand? Yeah. Oh. Well, that's something that I've always kind of struggled with. I'm glad it's been clarified to me recently. Is that if no one pushes that button, then nobody pushes the button in their life. Button list pushed. Forward. Yeah. And if you continue to live a life of hedonism and be content knowing that, well, since there's this gray cloud, and I'm not so sure, and no one's ever pointed it out to me, I'm not going to go through and investigate the memory of the conflict. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, those are great expressions that God uses means, and he uses men to reach men. Um, and if you give away the store trying to get somebody to buy, you've done it wrong. Don't give away the store. Well, this time scale is not our conversation. No. We want, we want to have that conversation and witness with somebody or start praying for them, and a week later, boom, they change their mind. Yeah. Or, you know, you have that argument, and they're like, oh, I see, I was wrong. Yeah. You pray for years, or you you witness to somebody, or you share the truth, and you never see them again. And God uses it ten years down the road. It's amazing. So yeah, be faithful. Stick to your guns. Know the word. And when I say know the word, I mean there's a way to strategically prepare. Know what the high places. That's why at the beginning of this sort of course, know those things that are precious that the godless are defending, and that's where you go. If you see troops amassing in a certain area, those are target-rich environments. Go find those places. It will make you unpopular. But those are the high places, like Josiah, tear down the Asherah pole. Go after them. All right, let's, let's uh, pray and we'll be done.